this is how bad it got. I had to take out a predatory lender. This is probably in 2015, to be honest. It was one of those where we needed to bridge like three to six months of cash flow and anything and everything we can do to do it, we're trying to do it. And essentially our agreement with each other was if nothing has changed by the end of 2016, we're just gonna fold this and either go back and be lawyers with our tails tucked or do something else. Yeah, here's a great tool that I should have thought about that we use all the time is for us and really everyone in our industry said, you can't do that. The company will fail if you don't go to this trade show. And we would just ask why, like, what do you mean the company will fail? Like we, it's going to fail if we go because we can't spend tens of thousands of dollars and waste three months preparing for that. We actually have to do other stuff. My name is Doug Bouton. I am 33 years old. I live in Chicago, Illinois. I am the president and COO of Halo Top. Halo Top is the first ever low calorie ice cream that actually tastes pretty darn good. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense before Halo Top, nothing like it existed. And most people, when they hear that you can have ice cream that's pretty good for you and actually tastes pretty good or doesn't taste like punishment, it's pretty mind blowing. That's Halo Top in a nutshell. And you said you're in Chicago? I'm in Chicago, yep. How'd you get there? I was out in LA. That's where my business partner and I met and kind of Halo Top started and is headquartered. And I met my now wife who was in Chicago at the time in grad school. And ultimately we got married. I left the sunny Southern California beach for Chicago where it is snowing as we speak. You met her there? Did you meet her in Los Angeles first or do you just randomly find her stalker on LinkedIn or something? <laughs> no, we met at a wedding that both of us were at. And how long have you been in Chicago now? So I moved to Chicago. This is probably going on my third year. I feel like I've gotten to know the city pretty well, but there's still quite a lot more to see. And then I have not figured out the suburbs of Chicago at all. That's still a mystery to me. So I got to spend some more time on that. And you said Halo Top, you started about six years ago, right? The company was really formed in 2011. But the first couple of years, it was just my business partner doing R&D on the recipe and trying to understand how to take it from his home kitchen to a full-scale manufacturer. The first full operational year was kind of 2013. That's when customers had heard of the brand and could see the product and buy the product. Has it been difficult over the last three years kind of being split up? Because if your business partner's in LA and then you're in Chicago? We're a remote-based company. So the short answer to that is no. We never had an office. We still don't have an office. We've kind of evolved to have a couple of co-working spaces where once a week, we might see if everybody will come into the office and work together. But for the most part, it's a remote-based company. That's kind of just our personalities. We do our own thing. We talk very frequently, obviously, but it's never really been an issue. And I do a lot of the traveling in terms of sales or operations. So Chicago's actually, this wasn't a plan, but looking back in hindsight, it's actually a much better location for me in terms of getting around the country or even getting to international countries than LA. I kind of like that idea, even though you have a virtual team, that they come together every once in a while, that y'all actually have a meetup location? Yeah, that's right. We've really been striving to find that balance between flexibility in terms of working from home and not just accountability, but also that camaraderie. And if you haven't worked from home before, it's a big difference. And it can be isolating and you kind of lose that teamwork and team atmosphere that you would get from working in an office or you'd have a group of work friends that you go to lunch to or grab a drink with after work. We've been trying to find that balance. And right now, once a week, we have everybody come in. It's not like there's meetings scheduled or anything. It's literally just to work in person, get a lunch together, and just put a face to a name and hang out. 
Why don't you tell us about how many people work for y'all too? And if you can get a general idea of revenues, but kind of want to heart back on this because I think this is important with a lot of people who have virtual teams. You kind of get that issue that you're having. Like I know when I've worked from home, you feel more isolated and then I've got team members that are spread out. But at least if they're in a location that even once a week sounds almost perfect match, if you had at least people in the same city, I think at least just meeting up every once in a while and you get that camaraderie. Yeah, of course. The company has, I think we're up to about 110 employees. LA is the headquarters. So in Southern California, we have right around 90. And then we have about 20 in Chicago. And the Chicago team comes together once a week. Different departments in LA comes together once a week. And then I'd probably say at least semi-annually, we try to get everyone together in one place, whether it be you know a holiday party or some other event. It works for us right now. If we grow to be 500 employees or 1,000 employees, we'll probably have to rethink it again and try to figure out what works. But right now, that's the balance that's worked for us. You're saying your ice cream is a little different because lower calorie and it tastes pretty good for a low calorie ice cream. Why don't you talk about it so anyone who's listening, maybe they've seen it and they don't realize it. Yeah. So there's two things, right? One, it starts with the product. So the product itself It's meant to be ice cream. It's meant to have the taste, the texture, the mouthfeel so that when you eat it, again, even though you're eating healthier, it doesn't taste like punishment or I'm not much for salads, but I have to eat them a lot now just trying to eat healthier. It doesn't taste like eating a salad, at least to me. That's the product. And in terms of, we kind of looked at what Greek yogurt did to yogurt and you could see that, hey, if you come out with something that's lower in calories, higher in protein, lower in sugar with a clean ingredient label, as long as you can actually deliver on that taste profile, the nutritional profile will speak for itself. That's really the getting that taste profile with the nutritional profile is what really sets the product apart. And then the second thing, again, I think you're alluding to is the brand or the branding and the packaging. And the packaging, we actually redesigned and relaunched in 2015. And it's the packaging that you see now that has the calories right on the front. It's got kind of the metallic gold lid that's shiny and stands out and pops off the shelf. We really wanted it to be minimalist. We obviously, pretty much everybody in the CPG space does. We looked to Apple and said, man, what a beautiful design that they have on all of their products. And minimalism is key because if you try to say everything, you can say nothing. And we really had to focus on what are key messages. And it was obviously low calorie. In the bottom right on the front of our pints, you'll see a very small call out for protein. But beyond that, that's really all that's on the front. It's a massive calorie call out. The colors are bright and pretty and almost pastel sometimes. And then the lid, like I said, it's shiny and it pops off the shelf. So the idea was if you have a set of seven or 14 or 21 of our SKUs on shelf, it'll just make this really beautiful billboard that can serve it, that can be very eye-catching and Again, just set it apart at a glance from everything else you'd see on the ice cream shelf. And I kind of agree with you with all the metallic and shinier things. To me, the first thing that stands out is you have a pretty big, the number of calories right in the front versus I've never really seen that with any of the ice cream ones. And then you get into the other things. And I think that's what anyone walking by would stand out. And you said CPG. And I think that means a consumer product group too, just so everyone's on the same page, right? Yeah. Consumer packaged goods. Sorry. Packaged goods. Sorry about that. There's so many acronyms. That's why I asked. I've had people say, hey, make sure you know, because sometimes I think I know and then I don't. All right. So we got this part of the story. Now we kind of got a better idea of your company. Why don't we reel it back to when you got started, when you joined the company, and then we'll just take it from there. Yeah, of course. So the company was actually founded by my business partner, Justin. He and I met in LA. We were both lawyers and we were working at different law firms. We met in a lawyer basketball league of all things. Just the once a week, we played pickup, a bunch of lawyers, terrible quality of play, I'm sure. Were you dunking and stuff? Yeah, I was dunking all over him. <laughs> <laughs> no, if I can ever dunk, I'll never play basketball again. But to this day, I haven't been able to. 
so at any rate, we met, we became friends. And this was before Halo Top, a couple of years before. This was probably 2010. And then I really hated working at a law firm and was thinking about what to do next. And I didn't really have a plan, but I was just going to quit the law firm anyways. I did this after really about a year of working for the law firm. And at that time, I remember talking to Justin and saying, hey, I'm done. He said, what are you going to do next? I said, I don't know. Don't care. I'll figure it out. And that's when he told me kind of what he had been doing separate from the law firm in terms of developing kind of the original formula for Halo Top. And actually, so this would have been in 2012, we would have started having conversations about this. And then by late 2012 and early 2013, we started talking about how do you raise money for the company? And I shadowed him on a sales trip to Whole Foods. Long story short, it got to the point where he needed help really getting this thing to take off and it was too much for one person and he needed to find a business partner and ask me to join him. So that would have been, I guess, formally in early 2013. Do you have any suggestions on anyone who's listening and who might want to become a lawyer before we jump into, I guess, the Halo Top story? Because, I mean, to go to law school for a couple of years, I'm assuming you had to go in debt. Maybe after a few years, you realized that wasn't life for you? Yeah, that's right. Here's my take on law schools and to each their own. So some people love it. And that's great. It just, for me, it wasn't. For me, law school's three years. Depending on the law school, you can pay more than 50 grand a year to go there with, I don't know, you can come out with almost 200 grand in debt to go to law school, which I did and Justin did as well. We both had massive student loan debts. The problem with law school is they all get ranked, the US News and World Report rankings or whatever the other rankings are, they all get ranked based on how many kids did you send top 20, top 50, top 100 law firms? How many kids did you place in judicial clerkships, et cetera? It's a really messed up system in the sense of the law schools are all incentivized to funnel you into this big law life. And then everything you learned in law school is really not applicable at the law firms. You learn everything on the job there. You realize you didn't need three years of law school. You probably could have gotten away with one year and then started working at a law firm and learned everything on the job because you learn everything on the job anyways. And then the law firms generally are really top heavy in terms of the partners obviously all make the money, your time, your schedule's not your own. So the only way you get leverage at a law firm is if you can develop a book of business of clients that you can then take to any other law firm you want. Then you have a ton of leverage. The problem is you never have time to develop any book of business. The law firm rates are so ridiculously astronomical that nobody who you talk to, none of your friends, none of your family could afford that law firm. It just creates a horrible environment where even if you become a service partner, where you're just servicing the clients of the rainmaking partners who actually bring in the business and a service partner has no leverage. Your life still isn't your own. You essentially have to do whatever the rainmaking partners say because it's their business and their clients. And it's just very quickly for me, I realize that's not a life I want. And especially if you look at the life of some of the partners, especially service partners, it's not a good life because they still have to work crazy hours. And yes, they get paid an absurd amount of money. Don't get me wrong. But that's the game and that's how it works. And again, I figured that out. I want nothing to do with that. And my personality isn't the type to suck it up for 10 years. And if I don't like something, I kind of move very quickly to get out of it. So that's what I did after about a year. In order to stay competitive in today's world, it's so important that we keep learning and developing our skills. That's what the Great Courses Plus is all about. And while you'll love this service, founded on the idea that education should be accessible to everyone, they make it possible to learn from the brightest minds out there that most of us would never otherwise have access to. Professors from the best universities in the world like Harvard, Yale, and Stanford, even experts from National Geographic and the Smithsonian. This is college-level learning, but without the student loans or the pressure of homework or grades. 
and the Great Courses Plus app makes it possible to learn whichever way works best for you. Watch or listen to lectures at any time. I recommend checking out the Critical Business Skills for Success. There you'll learn more about strategy, operations, finance, organizational behavior, and marketing from some of the top business school professors in the country, sharing tools and insights that you'd get from an MBA program. Unlock a world of knowledge with The Great Courses Plus. Right now, they're giving my listeners a special limited time offer, a free month of unlimited access to the entire library. But to get this offer, you need to sign up now through my special URL. Start your free month today. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com forward slash millionaire. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com forward slash millionaire. Or to find out more about this special offer, check out our episode notes below for more information. Well, it's good that you recognize that early on. Were you just working ridiculous hours too? Because at least we try to pull a positive out of everything. If you look back, even if you only did it for a few years, you realize, hey, you could have done that for 40 years and then hated yourself for it. I don't know if you always had a strong work ethic or the type of hours that I hear are usually pretty wild as well. Yeah, there's no, I mean, I wasn't anything close to some of my friends had to put in, but it also depended. I was on a corporate law, so that's more a deal base. Like when one company wants to buy another, all the paperwork that goes into that, or if one company's doing an IPO, all the paperwork that goes into that. If you're on a deal, it's like all bets are off and you might have to pull multiple all-nighters and you're just working crazy hours for a few weeks or a month until the deal closes or dies. But at times I had terrible hours. At times it wasn't that bad. You're just stuck in an office. FaceTime is a big thing there. So there could be dice where you sit in the office and you bill one hour of billable work just because there's no work to do. But you're still expected to sit there in the office all day, which I never liked or agreed with. It just seems inefficient. I don't like inefficiency. But in terms of the positives, I mean, look, I met an incredible network of people at law school and at my law firm, many of whom became invested in the friends and family around a halo top. I don't want to act like that I regret it or didn't get anything useful out of it. I did. I just, in hindsight, I wish law schools and law firms would make young lawyers realize that as soon as you pass the bar, that's a license to make money. Like you're licensed to practice law. You can charge people for your advice. And that means you can start your own law firm if you want. That means you can go work for a startup company if you want it. You don't have to spend five years at a big law firm hating your life. And that's really, it seems like the only option when you come out of these law schools. That's where I'm probably most disappointed in the system and really think it needs some work. Speaking of work, let's talk about the work that you had to start doing with Halo Top and how you made that transition. And if we could jump into like, I don't know if Justin had saved up some money or you saved up money, because if you're both lawyers and then having to start this, I don't know if your student loans are paid off. Just tell us about the early years. We really like to dive into that and try to get a good idea what was happening and how you're able to do it. We call those the dark years for (laughs) us. 2013, 2014, and 2015 even were really tough years for the company. So Justin and I both had hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loans, quite literally. And we're not the type who have parents who gave us trust funds or just give us a million dollars to start a company. Cash flow, as any startup company knows, cash is gold. When you run out of cash, it's done. It was a really stressful time for those first few years because the company's not cash flow positive. It's losing money every month. And you're just sitting there counting down the months until you have to either raise again, until the company has to fold, or until the company finally turns the corner and becomes cash flow positive. It's really stressful when you've got all this debt hanging over your head and you're taking out even more debt and personally guaranteeing more debt to put it into the company and try to keep the company afloat. And to put some numbers to it, we raised $500,000. We closed that round in September of 2013. That was all friends and family. 
Then we raised a million dollars and closed that round in September of 2015, two years later. Again, all friends and family. And that's actually the only equity that has been raised or been put into the company. So 1.5 million total. And then beyond that, we had taken out $250,000 microfinance loan that we took out and both personally guaranteed at one point. Um, I remember, <laughs> this is how bad I got. I had to take out a predatory lender. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I remember, this is probably in 2015, to be honest. It was one of those where we needed to bridge like three to six months of cash flow and anything and everything we can do to do it. We're trying to do it. It was one of those junk mail letters that was like, you qualify for 35K or whatever it is. And I think Justin applied and he got denied because his credit was too low. And I can't remember what his credit score was. It was terrible. Mine was maybe 50 points higher than him. So certainly not good, but I guess high enough to get approved by a predatory lender. So I got that one and put it into the company. That's kind of where you're at. If you believe in your product, if you believe in your concept, you do anything and everything you can and you essentially personally bankrupt yourself. So the risk is massive. In hindsight, I get it. But you're not really thinking about failure at that point. You really can't. If you let yourself think about it, it just becomes too real, too risky. You certainly have those thoughts, don't get me wrong, but you have to do everything you can to block them out, have tunnel vision, keep your eye on the prize and just kind of have your blinders on to say, hey, we got a great product here. We got a great concept and it'll work if we just keep at it. Were y'all both single at the time? Yep. We were both single. I'm trying to think of when I met my wife. I probably met her, I think it was late 2013 when we met and started dating in 2014 and 2015, we got married in August of 2015. So I actually had a girlfriend for a good chunk of that time and then a wife. So I laugh about it with her now. I don't really think I led on to her just how <laughs> dire the financial situation was. Right. Because she's essentially thinking like she's marrying this lawyer who make good money. And then yeah. you're actually doing the exact opposite, going further and further in debt. Yeah. So to her credit, she let me do all of that. Never once really pressured me or said anything about that. I remember, it's funny too, looking back, I think her, not her mom and dad, but I think like some of her aunts and uncles, I'm not kidding. They thought I was like pushing around an ice cream cart selling popsicles or something. <laughs> so it's funny thinking back on. I don't know if she would just say you were a lawyer back then. I mean, would she still say that even if you're working on ice cream? So at least they'd look at you differently versus if you're the ice cream man. I think unfortunately for her, I had really severed all ties with the law from at that point. All she could say was, I'm an ice cream man. And they would just look at her like, what are you doing with an ice cream man? <laughs> yeah, I get the same looks too. My wife, she works with a lot of doctors. And I guess I used to say I work commercial real estate. So they're like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, that's great, you're great. But now it's like, she has to tell them I'm a podcaster. And they're like, what's that? <laughs> and then they look, what are you doing? <laughs> Holly, you know, we can get you a new husband if you want. And so, Yeah, I can absolutely relate. Yeah, because people can look differently at you just because they don't know what you are or whatever, but they don't understand the work ethic and stuff that you're putting behind it to try to make something positive, you know? Yeah, of course. It seemed like you kept bringing on that money. Did y'all have more employees at that point? Because you kept saying you had a bridge those couple of months with a predatory loan and stuff. Did you see something was about to turn a corner and that's the reason y'all were trying to take out even more of those loans to try to get past it? Or were you not really sure at that point? The short answer is we weren't sure. In 2013, the product we launched with was way worse than the product is now. We ended up reformulating really four or five times, but that last reformulation that we did was kind of a massive reformulation that removed certain ingredients, added certain ingredients, and really essentially made the product, it's a frozen product, obviously, as ice cream, but it made it more resilient through the frozen supply chain where there's all these different opportunities for temperature abuse where the product can melt and refreeze, and then obviously it's ruined at that point. And the whole point is you got to try to keep that frozen integrity until the end consumer gets your product so that they have a good customer experience. And then hopefully customer retention is high and they buy it again. 
early on, the product didn't have that. And our customer retention was bad. And the products often would be chalky or flaky or icy and really just result in a bad customer experience to where even if we were gaining customers because people wanted to try it, we weren't retaining those customers and they certainly weren't telling other people about it. We ended up discontinued at a couple of retailers. We lost more than half of our store counts. This would have been in 2014 going into 2015. And it was really a dark, stressful period. So in terms of getting more money or bridging it, it was in 2015, I think I mentioned earlier, we kind of launched in April of that year with the new packaging that you see today. At that point, it had the new formula in it. So the new packaging gave us this entirely new look and feel, which allowed us to essentially reinvent ourselves and bring back customers we probably had lost to say, hey, it looks different now. Let's try it again. And fortunately, it was way better this time. Retention was much higher. And that really mattered. So 2015, again, we started to see some traction. We certainly weren't cash flow positive. But by the end of 2015, it also certainly wasn't guaranteed to succeed at that point. But we felt like we finally had the right packaging. And now it was just a matter of kind of sales and marketing execution. By the end of 2015, we were confident that this would work now, but we had no idea what was coming in 2016 and beyond in terms of kind of the scale and the speed with which the brand and the product just took off, which we can get into, of course. That's where we were at when we were taking out those predatory loans and raising that final round of financing. I remember we raised that million dollars that closed in September 2015. And both of us, we said, we're not raising again. That gave us runway on paper, at least, that should have lasted for about 15 months. So call it until the end of 2016. And essentially our agreement with each other was if nothing has changed by the end of 2016, we're just gonna fold this and either go back and be lawyers with their tails tucked or do something else. Raising money is a really painful process. You're asking people for money. You're asking people to invest in you, to invest in your company, to invest in your product. You get 10 no's for every yes. And it's hard to ask for help in the first place, but that's kind of exactly what you're doing when you're raising money. It's a very personal thing and plenty of people invest in you. And to this day, I feel so indebted to the people who invested in us when they invested in us. But for every person who did, there's five people who didn't. Many of them close friends or close family who everyone has their own reason, but they might not have been in a financial position. They may just have said, hey, product's not good enough or whatever it is. And again, you try not to resent anybody for that. I have no idea what circumstances they were in that led to their decision. It is a very personal and painful thing to raise money. I do remember us saying, we're not doing that again. This is the last time we're doing it. And if nothing's changed by the time this money runs out, then we'll just call it a day. It sounded like 2016 was that tipping point for y'all as far as reformulating the product, the new packaging. But again, if we could stick in these first couple of years some more, and I think a lot of people are listening are in those stages of their business right now. Just talking about how many employees you had there, like how you and Justin worked together. At least you had someone to lean on during this point in time. I mean, if I was by myself, I would even feel worse off not being able to bounce things off each other. But just talk about y'all's relationship and how that worked. And then also your employees. I don't know how much information you gave them about where y'all were as far as the, I guess you're taking on equity at least at that point in time, but not having a hundred percent direction if you were getting in these stores and then getting kicked out of them, you know, that could be a punch to the gut, like you were saying earlier. Yeah, of course. It was actually just two of us. Well, three, if you include my little brother, Ryan. He joined really early on as kind of like, we laugh about it, but he was kind of our grunt who would do all the grunt work and he'd do anything and everything from, hey, we need you to go do a demo at this Whole Foods, or we need you to go prepare this sample shipment and send it, or we need you to do something on Facebook or Instagram in terms of customer service type stuff. 
essentially just three of us all the way. I think the first employee we hired, actually, we hired my best friend, who's also Justin, Justin Ball, in probably late 2015. And he would have been employee number one, technically, or I guess two, if you include Ryan as number one. The band was really small, I guess I'll say at this time. At that point in time, you don't have much money to pay and there's not much traction. It's not like you can recruit talent or people who don't know you personally. So it probably goes as no surprise that my little brother and my best friend in life who joined early on, I'd say our first true third party employee who we hired probably happened in the middle of 2016. If I remember correctly, we hired Gunny Patrick to help with our operations as it was continuing to expand and get more complicated. Early on in those years, in terms of how Justin and I work, you all have an actual office location or were you all working from your house? We worked straight out of our homes. It was isolating. It was lonely. Again, to your point, though, you know, it's kind of like the same misery loves company. <laughs> yeah. It is really, really nice to have a partner who's going through exactly what you're going through, who you can talk to about those things. And I think Justin and I both had to learn to talk to each other about that stuff. We would get both of us at different times, just in really, really dark mental states, because it's hard not to. But with the hours you're working, for me, I was traveling all the time. And it's just hard not to. And you really need somebody to lean on to or to talk to about that stuff. And I think early on, we were probably reluctant to do that, or maybe didn't want to admit to the other person that we were not that happy and going through some stuff. So it was probably him who first opened up that and I can't really remember because I don't like have a specific memory of a conversation. I just know at some point we started, we could tell each other like, hey, man, it's been a rough couple weeks or couple months. I need to shut down for a week and mentally here and I'm just in a really bad spot. We got to the point where we could start having those conversations with each other. And that really helps because it's real in terms of, I don't want to call it depression, but again, it's just a really overwhelmingly stressful time when your company, like I said, it's losing money every month. It may not be working the way you want it to work. It may not be resonating with consumers the way you want it to resonate. And you have no backup plan. Like your backup plan is to file for personal bankruptcy and start again. That's literally it. It's just such a hard time. And we didn't have an office. And so we often didn't see each other in person. But I think we realized not very quickly. We realized at some point that doesn't need to be every week, but once a month whatever it may be, we've got to force ourselves to get together in person because it's just kind of reinvigorating just be around the other person and see them. Yeah, I think that's everybody. Like, Because obviously you got to work hard in those beginning years. And I think anyone who's listening knows that as well. You're working hard, but sometimes you get in those. I never like to think of myself as ever being depressed or anything like that. But like for the day, you're like, screw this. I work hard, but maybe it's the middle of the afternoon. I'm like, I can't do any more work today because it's just you have a couple different things going. And I just mentally got to shut down or else you're never going to refresh enough to hit the next day. Or maybe it takes a couple of days to get back into the spin of things, especially again. I mean, if you were just raking in money from day one, then you probably never, never had those down points, I guess, to an extent, right? Yeah, if it had taken off from day one, I would have thought, oh, this is easy. And right. again, in hindsight, I think we're both really fortunate and probably thankful on some level that we actually had multiple years of real struggles. One, you appreciate the success more, but it just keeps you humble in the sense of we were not destined to be here and we could have failed 20 times over. And we got a lot of lucky breaks and a lot of right product, right time. And that really helped us out. So it just maybe you see other companies that have meteoric success immediately and sometimes hear in their stories, you don't really ever hear that there was even a chance of failure and that they were almost destined to succeed. And you're like, that's not true. <laughs> 
what specifically were you doing in those early years that led to at least some success? And then we can jump into the turning point for your company. Just looking back, is there anything that anyone listening could use for their company that you're like, hey, I'm glad I did this because it helped my company, even though, again, you're kind of negative, but there's obviously stuff you were doing to grow the company. Just tell us if there's anything that comes to mind and then we'll jump to the transition period here. Yeah, sure. Two things come to mind off the top of my head. I think the first is how smart we got with our money in the sense of we would not spend a dollar on anything unless we could somehow justify it objectively, like removing our egos. If we could just somehow justify that that dollar spend would generate more than a dollar back to us because cash was so important. And that allowed us to critically think more about our spends, whether it be marketing or sales or food shows, which are really big in our industry, and really go against conventional wisdom. For example, we stopped doing food shows because they were such a waste of time and money. And we could better use that time and money with me flying around the country to do meetings with retailers. And Justin was working on the marketing where he could put that to work on targeted digital social ads. For us, and really everyone in our industry said, you can't do that. The company will fail if you don't go to this trade show. And we would just ask, why? Like, what do you mean the company will fail? Like, we, It's going to fail if we go because we can't spend tens of thousands of dollars and waste three months preparing for that. We actually have to do other stuff. That's one. It just kind of being so deliberate with your spends and careful with how you spend your money. And that's why we didn't have an office. We thought an office expense would be a waste. We thought, why spend even two grand a month or whatever it may be to lease an office space when that's money better spent elsewhere? That was really important. And then the other thing, I don't think you can discount hard work. And again, you hear from everybody about just how hard they work and this and that. Anybody who's telling you they work hard, I don't really trust. (laughs) I kind of agree with you. (laughs) Like I said, we caught a lot of lucky breaks, but I'm a firm believer that you kind of make your own luck and hard work begets luck. I just don't think you can really discount the value of hard work. Let me add one more thing. And that is, I think a lot of people are scared to ask sometimes, whether it's to ask somebody for money or to invest or to ask a retailer for a meeting or anything. And I am firmly of the belief that the worst somebody can do is say no. And with that in mind, I would cast the widest net possible when it was time to raise money or I would literally, I'd like cold call the corporate headquarters and pose as somebody else, just trying to get the contact information for the buyer who I needed to speak to on ice cream. And then I'd just send them an email and I'd send hundreds of emails a week. Maybe only 10% of them even respond to me. And of that, maybe only 10% even take a meeting, but you got to get meetings and there's really no other way to do it. And I think that's smart to realize too, that when you say you're sending out that many emails, if you own your own business right now and you're thinking you're doing a lot, maybe they only look up 10 people and then send out 10 emails, but it's always a numbers game. You will always realize that it's going to funnel down. So if you want to go ahead and just start off with 10 contacts versus you, if you're going ahead and doing a hundred contacts, right, you're going to win. Obviously, if you're going against your ice cream competitors and they're trying to get to these same people. So anyone who's listening, I mean, I would never limit it to a small count, do as much as you can in the beginning. And then again, it will just keep funneling down. Yep. And for us, the way it works is there's somebody called a buyer across different categories in grocery stores and ice cream being one of those categories. It's a personality driven business where the buyer is literally a dictator and the gatekeeper to what goes on the shelf. So you may get some great personalities that are willing to hear you out and take a chance on a young brand. And you may get some lazy personalities that just want the big company items and don't really want to do any work. They just want to press a button and be done. So to that point, it really is a numbers game. And they're usually in the second group, they're not the first group. So you really have to reach out to 
tens or hundreds just to hope that you get a couple meeting. And it really is a numbers game. I think we understand the first couple of years, everything was kind of struggle, but I think it's super smart to be tight with your money. I think that's one other thing we've learned as we've listened to more people, the power of not necessarily just making a budget on everything, but assigning a dollar when it comes down, because I don't ever consider myself cheap either. I don't need to spend tens of thousands, like you were saying, to go to this expo. The people who are at the expo are probably telling you you're going to fail because you got to think of their incentive. They want Halo Top ice cream to come there and spend those tens of thousands of dollars. Always just think about who's giving you that advice and why you might fail. And if it's their incentive to get you to that expo or whatever, then of course they want you to come. So they're going to tell you that. Anyone who has their own company, again, just think about that in life. Just think who's giving you the advice that you're getting. And hopefully we're getting advice from smart business people like yourself to try to learn about the experiences that we can take from to grow our businesses. And if we're going to go ahead and transition, let's go ahead and talk about the upswing in your company and get out of the dark days. <laughs> Gladly. Yeah. Our big break came in early 2016. So at this point in time, we had the right packaging on shelves. We had the right formula. We didn't have a lot of money. And so for us, it was just a matter of trying to get enough people to hear about the product and aware that the product exists, which is always the challenge. So we got two big breaks. The first was an article in late January 2016 from GQ. It was this guy who ate nothing but Halo Top for 10 days. Literally nothing happened. Was this you? And this is not me. This is the thing. When I talk about a lucky break, we didn't even know this was coming. We didn't ever meet this guy. Our web hits were just going nuts one day. And we were like, where are all these hits coming on the website? And we could trace it back to this article. And then the article, it was just funny and witty and cheeky and a really great article for the brand, which really put the ice cream in a very positive light in terms of what it was and how he used it. So while we don't recommend that you eat nothing but Halo Top for 10 days, we were very fortunate to have that article come out. To the point about how hard work begets luck here, it was absolutely a lucky break that that article came. But when we finally talked to the author to kind of understand how he had heard about our brand, he heard about it from his personal trainer. And his personal trainer was somebody that we had contacted or indirectly contacted to send some samples to. So it's just kind of one of those things where, yes, we absolutely didn't know the article was coming and got very lucky that it came the way it did. But you could trace it back to something that we had done, which is always nice. And then a week later, BuzzFeed came out with an article as well that was kind of like taste testing us against haagen And again, it put us in a very positive light. Those articles came back to back. So they put quite literally millions of eyeballs on the brand and on the product. And then a lot of those people who read those articles rushed to the store to buy it. And I guess the other key piece to this is that the time those two articles came out, we weren't in every single store, anything close to that, but we were in somewhere between probably three to four, maybe at most 5,000 stores, but it was enough stores where somebody didn't have to drive a hundred miles to get the product. Now it might not be their neighborhood grocery store, but maybe it's a mile or two away. So they might have to drive five or 10 minutes away. We were in enough stores where we could capitalize on that PR, which is really critical. If you get good PR and if you can't sell direct to consumer, which we couldn't as a frozen item, you got to make sure that your retail footprint is such that the PR won't be wasted. Again, it was just perfect timing where the packaging was right, the product was right, and the retail footprint was large enough for us to be able to capitalize on it. The short story here is that those two articles came out and this thing just took off like a rocket ship where so many people went out to buy the product. And then at the time, again, it's hard now because there's so many knockoffs. But at the time, we were the only product like that out 
everybody, their mind was blown. They couldn't believe that, for lack of a better term, healthy ice cream existed and it actually tasted good. Not only would they buy it, they'd buy it in multiples and they would eat it every day and they would tell all their friends and family that they had found the best thing since sliced bread. I guess in terms of this day and age, the brand itself kind of went viral because of those articles and then what it was. We've just been holding on ever since and trying to figure it out from there. Well, tell us about your personal turning point when this happened. I mean, was it an enlightening experience where you're just like those other days, there's a lot more ups and downs to it seemed like in the beginning when things are quote unquote dark or just tell us about personally how you were feeling different than maybe the beginning years. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's naturally it's exciting when something like that happens. And again, my partner and I, Justin and I, I'd probably have to admit that we skew pessimistic by nature. Well, you're lawyers. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> you're almost in disbelief, right? Like this isn't really happening or the other shoe will drop and this will just be a fad or trend. And kind of what happened was sales kept doubling month over month and to the point where if we didn't take an optimistic or even aggressive approach to what was going to happen, we weren't going to be able to make enough product on the supply side. <laughs> so we had to say, hey, we need to stop doubting this and try to get ahead of it because it's going to be really hard to keep up with demand here if this keeps growing exponentially. It took a few months. It was probably by April or May that the reality set in that we were on a rocket ship and this thing was taking off and we better start taking that approach to everything or we're going to make some mistakes. For example, we'd be out of stock for months because we couldn't make enough product or something like that. But it definitely took a few months for that reality to set in. I remember at the time, I think we both had small salaries. And in the dark years too, we'd have to suspend our salaries for a month or a quarter just to float the company for more money. I think we were both taking right around 60 grand a year at the time, which for LA, the cost of living is really high out there. 60 grand doesn't go nearly as far in LA as it does elsewhere. So at any rate, I think those were our salaries in early 2016. And I think by mid 2016, we're like, wow, could we take a raise up to 80,000 a year each? Those kind of conversations where it's funny, again, looking back on it being like, man, we were so nervous to do that, we really waited months and months and months later until we were absolutely sure that this was real and this was happening. If you guys haven't heard about Roan, you're really missing out. Roan is a men's performance lifestyle and premium activewear brand that is engineered for unparalleled quality and comfort. They're an absolute necessity for guys on the go. It doesn't matter if you're training in the gym or jumping on international flights. They are your new go-to men's clothing brand. My favorite part of Roan is the comfort of these new shorts that I'm wearing right now. See, Roan makes something for the modern man, regardless of the occasion. In addition to an awesome selection of premium shorts, shirts, tank tops, socks, and swimwear, Roan engineers clothing perfect for the office, long flights, and commutes. And now Roan has just released their amazing new commuter collection, perfect for looking great and staying comfortable at the office. Again, the comfort and quality of my new shorts are what I like best about Roan. And Roan's commuter collection is a performance alternative to the everyday workwear, offering everything from pants, polos, shorts, and shirts that are all lightweight, comfortable, and wrinkle-free. The commuter collection is good for all weather, anytime from a weekday in the workplace to a weekend barbecue. So go to roan.com slash millionaire today and use promo code millionaire to get 20% off your first purchase. That's roan, R-H-O-N-E dot com slash millionaire and use promo code millionaire for 20% off. One more time, roan.com slash millionaire and use promo code millionaire. And tell us about trying to think forward and expanding because I don't know who's making your product at this point. If you're shipping all across the U.S., if you need 
places in different locations making them and making sure they make it the exact same, your new formula, as they would in one location versus a different location. Just tell us if we're lucky enough to have a product company like yours and take off, how we can stay ahead of the curve to make sure we don't run out of stock and miss out on the PR that you ended up getting. Yeah, I think the hardest thing for us, well, really for any company is for the most part, it's very rare for a startup company to own its own manufacturing. So you usually hire what are called co-manufacturers or in ice cream, they're called co-packers. And all that means is it's a third-party manufacturer who's there. It's not like there's thousands of ice cream manufacturers in the US. There's probably 25 or 30. And of those, you may actually only trust 10 or 15 with your product. And of those, maybe only six or eight even have capacity to give you. So it's a really small market which makes it difficult. And for us, we kind of came up with some creative ideas where we talked to the co-packer, the trusted ones at least, and we'd say, hey, we have the volume, you have the expertise. What if we actually brought in an entirely new ice cream line and you just hired the people and you basically service this line, but it would be running Halo Top 24-7, 365, no other products on it. And we struck multiple deals like that with some of our most trusted manufacturers, which really helped us. It was just a win-win in the sense of the manufacturer had the expertise, they had the space, and we had the volume to guarantee them. And then it was just a matter of how quickly we can get those types of lines and those types of agreements in place to try to keep up with the demand. And again, it wasn't perfect in the sense of, I'm not going to say we were never out of stock, but it might be like we get a PO for 15 different flavors and we'd be out of stock on one flavor for a few days. So we'd ship the PO with 14 flavors and inevitably the retailer would be like, hey, you missed a flavor on here and be like, oh, we're so sorry. You know, but <laughs> we just buy a few days being like, oh, that must have been a mistake at the warehouse. And it was like, no, we didn't have the problem. <laughs> and PO's purchase order just so everyone's on the same page too. That's right. And I am so sorry. I hate uh, it's people good. Who, That's why I'm helping you. I know. I'm saying I hate people who talk in acronyms. I'm just so embedded <laughs> in this thing right now. I forget sometimes when I'm using them. So at any rate, that's how we did it for different products or different industries. It could be different, but it was somewhat, I don't want to use revolutionary. That just seems like hyperbole, but it was definitely different or hadn't been done before where we kind of flipped the co-packer relationship on its head where normally a co-packer works with 20 different brands to reduce their liability or their risk in case any one brand doesn't work out. And this was more of like, we tried to find our closest, best partners and say, hey, go all in with us we'll guarantee you the volume and we just need you to service the line. It created more of a partnership or like a, almost a joint venture relationship as opposed to this normal Vendee vendor relationship. Were they just sectioning off? Because I'm trying to visualize this. I mean, are they just taking a part of their actual industrial center and cutting off and saying, this is only Halo Top? Are you getting a whole new building and they're coming over there and making a different type of company? Can you just explain that a little bit more? It depends on the manufacturer. So we're only with two now. We kind of consolidated down to our best two once we got ahead of this thing. And one of the two, essentially, we have our own separate room that's just Halo Top. It's got our line in there and it makes our product. The other one invested tens of millions into its own plant to kind of really update and upgrade its plant to be ready for our product and our volume and the best equipment and the most efficient stuff in place. So that's not in a separate area, so to speak, but it kind of was all redone and revamped before we started making product there. I guess over good years, the enlightening years, if you will, this period, what's been the most difficult part now with your growth? Because at least we've got money coming in the door. Sounds like things are going pretty well. But just tell us about the growth dealing with that and what other obstacles that people listening might have if they're growing a company to your size. Sure. There's no doubt the supply chain we just talked about that. That's a huge challenge anytime you scale. 
And then you alluded to it too, but how do you hire the right people quickly enough is a challenge that every single company will face that's scaling. And you're just moving at lightning speed. If you're like us, you've never hired or fired anybody before. And you have to learn that on the go. It's just really hard. We've learned a ton. We're certainly not perfect. There really isn't a good answer to that other than I think what we learned is rather than rushing to fill a spot because you need a body, that could set you back longer than waiting a few months to hire the right person, as opposed to you hire the wrong person, you might be set back a full year, start again and hire somebody else. It's just better to wait and make sure you hire the right person. That's what we hear from time to time. But I'm just curious for you, has there been anything, I'm not saying you perfected it at all, but is there anything at all that's helped more than anything? I mean, is it like having friends or employees refer other people or are you using a service to help hire these people? I hear this time and time again, you know, wait on the hiring, you want to fire fast, but it seems like it's difficult to find those people. So I don't know as far as good people that you want to hire, especially when you need them to grow as soon as possible. Is there any tips or any ideas of what we should stay away from when we're doing that? If you can get a hire from a trusted referral, that's the best. Those almost always, again, if you trust the source that it's coming from, the problem is if you need to hire 100 people, you're not going to be able to get trusted referrals for 100 people. So that's definitely the best. And I would tap that well until it's dry, whether it's current employees, friends, family. Again, just make sure you trust the source and that you don't want to just hand out a job to hand out a job kind of thing. But And then other than that, yeah, I mean, we have recruiting services. They are exactly what you would think. They're just not good. (laughs) I thought they might be good. Okay, never mind. They're not. I just thought that they might be good since that's supposed to be their job. If you find one or hear one, you let me know. But we have yet to find one that we've been really happy with consistently. And it's just the nature of that world. It just doesn't lend itself to high quality work. It's a lot of turnover. Yeah, it's a lot of turnover. And we just recently hired somebody in-house to be kind of our hiring manager or to help fill that role in-house. So time will tell. We found with every other facet of the business, when we bring it in-house, it gets done better than when we're relying on third parties to do it. So I'm hoping that that would be a key fix. And if that's a fix, then that's a hire that we probably should have made a year and a half or two years ago. That could be the route rather than pay corporate recruiters tens of thousands of dollars a year, spend that money on a salary to hire your own in-house recruiter. Again, the key is making sure it's the right person. The other thing here, besides just making sure that people substantively can do the job, as much as I don't like the word culture, but just making sure they fit within your company is really challenging in terms of what you're trying to build and how you're trying to build it and the type of people that you want you know, in there as managers and bosses in your company. So I think there's really no right answer to that. You have to trust your gut a lot and do your in-person interviews, maybe go out to dinner with them or some other kind of like social setting, make sure they interview with enough people. Just really try to get a read on how they'll fit socially within the company because that really is critical. Luckily, your virtual teams, they seem like they're both in these two cities, and I envy the opportunity to have that one day as far as just people that I could get together who are virtual team, but maybe we meet once a week, once a month, at least something like that. I think some people listening might be scared or not sure how to do that well if they're hiring someone to work from home, either they're in the same city or maybe in a different country. But how do y'all stay organized or communicate? Is there anything other than meeting in person once a week that you think has worked well or hasn't worked well? Yeah, sure. Number one, I think you have to set expectations in terms of like, hey, you know, you don't want somebody who's flaky or who's like, oh, I was at the gym or I was doing this. If you need them to be somewhere and be responsive on email or on phone, just set that expectation so that there's no excuse or miscommunication as to why they weren't there. And then again, I said, we try to find that 
balance between flexibility and accountability. Accountability is huge. For us, I think it's, there's so much that needs to get done. We're still very lean and mean that if somebody's not pulling their weight or doing their work, it becomes immediately obvious within the first few weeks. As long as you stay true to that lean and mean mentality where like everybody has more work than they need or than they can do, it'll become so obvious who's not pulling their weight, even if they're working from home. But that's not to say that expectations shouldn't be communicated clearly in terms of availability and stuff like that. But we have not found much trouble sniffing out the people who take advantage of the remote work environment. And those people do exist. Well, how about you use any like software or programs or any methods that make sure y'all still communicate? Because I agree with you. Even if you hire an employee and they come to work and you have your own office, they say they have their own office door, they could close that door and be on Facebook or whatever all day long, right? So the idea of the ability for them to work at home, hopefully they just get it done on their time, like within an idea of you need this done by tomorrow. So they get it done tomorrow. You don't care if it's done in the morning, afternoon or night, but just as far as like communication. Yeah. So we use Slack in terms of single place communication for everybody for each department that is. And then we also use things like, if you ever heard of Basecamp, it's like a project management tool that's cloud-based and allows everyone access to it. Basecamp and Slack are probably the two technologies that we use. Almost all of our files are on Dropbox. I'd say Slack and Basecamp are kind of the two things that also help provide accountability in terms of somebody being available or in the project management. The ball is in whose court at what point and why is it still there and is it moving along, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, then I guess Dropbox, as you said, because I try to keep it simple when I ask something like that. Sometimes people get overburdened. They want to use the newest thing all the time. And I keep hearing people talk about Slack or a project management tool, like you're saying, which I've heard of is Basecamp. And then I assume we still use email, but I can see also the inbox. I think we were even talking before that sometimes you get so much distractions from those things. Just always trying to find what methods that people use because we can hear you about hiring these people, but then some people don't even know where to start. So then it's like worth checking out sometimes these softwares or anything else that you're using that helps. Yeah, here's a great tool that I should have thought about that we use all the time is you ever heard of Boomerang? I have. Yeah. Tell people what it does. Yeah. So we use Boomerang all the time. It's an add-on that you can add to Gmail. Gmail is our interface for our corporate email. And essentially, every time I send an email, I can Boomerang it back to myself. So it'll come back to my inbox if somebody doesn't respond to the email. So rather than a handwritten list of, because I send hundreds of emails a day, it's really hard to keep track of, did somebody respond to my question via email? I can literally boomerang it, say, hey, send this back to me in a week if nobody responds. And then a week later, it'll come back to me and I can reply and say, hey, why has nobody answered this yet? So it's a really, by far the most helpful tool for me to stay on top of my follow-ups, which is, that's the hardest part as things get bigger and busier and there's more and more things to do and things to keep track of. How do you make sure you're actually following up with this and that? I like to say we have a boomerang test for all of our employees where if you're getting boomerang, if a manager or somebody else is following up with you because they boomerang something back to themselves, then you failed the boomerang test and you don't want to fail that. You want to be able to answer whatever question or follow-up was sent to you before you get followed up with again. That's perfect. Anyone who might be scared to hire a virtual assistant and I think your quote unquote boomerang test is perfect. Like, okay, let's just say if it was even 48 hours, like they needed something to get done and that came back to you and they didn't respond to you, then that's an issue. 100%. Yep. Easy to 100%. Yeah. Like you're saying, make sure that they did this in time or they didn't do it in time. You didn't care if they did it an hour from now, or I guess you assume you'd want them to get it done as fast as possible, but if they didn't get it done within their time frame, then that's an issue. 
I've talked with other people who have issues like, okay, I've got a sales cycle and a pipeline and I'm perfect about following up if they don't come back to me. But sometimes they'll come back to you once and you'll send an email and then they get lost. Yep. But with the boomerang thing, like you're saying, it comes out of your pipeline, but it still can remind you instead of being just on a maybe a pipe drive or something like that, a CRM that's easy to track. Yeah. It's been a lifesaver for me. When things were getting away from me the most as we were growing and scaling and hiring so many people, it was how on earth do I have confidence that I'm managing the business, the business isn't managing me. And Boomerang's been a huge part of that. We thank you for coming on and telling your story. What do you see for the future of your company and I guess over the next couple of years and where you want to take it? Yeah, it's interesting. For us, it's our core business, which is the pint in the US at least, has really kind of matured at this point. So we really looked at Chobani and we say, look, their original yogurt cup also matured. And then what did they do? They innovated and they came out with the flips. They came out with shakes. They kind of expanded their brand and product offerings. And I think that's key for us is where else do we take this brand and why? Um, a couple of weeks ago, we launched our first novelty item, which we called Halo Top Pops. It's like ice cream on a stick. It's six to a pack. They're small and snackable. And we're really excited about that, for example. And it's more of where can we continue to innovate now that it's such a crowded space? How do we continue to stay three, four, five steps ahead of everybody else so everyone else is copying us and we're never copying them? And I think that's the challenge. That's where all the work is. It's a lot of work. It's exciting when you're a competitor at heart and the competition wakes up that side of you where you want to stay ahead. That's where the focus is. Well, again, thank you for coming on. If anyone wanted to reach you and say thank you for coming on, Doug, what's the best way for them to reach you or say thank you for doing the interview? They can actually just email me. It's just Doug, D-O-U-G, at halotop.com. Very easy. Thank you for coming on, Doug. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Let's get started with our Patreon shoutouts. You can find more about each member's business by checking your episode notes below. Paul Rantham of Mod Pro Containers in British Columbia, Canada. Stephen Faulkner of Cybernet Solutions in Dallas, Texas. Brendan Banderswag of Metro Gutter in Halifax, Canada. Rocky Atkins in Cincinnati, Ohio. Thank you for joining the exclusive Gold Club as well. And our last Gold Club member, Stephen Granger in Austin, Texas of Recall Rabbit. And last but not least, our two anonymous location Patreon members are Patrick McKennedy, located somewhere in the world, and Randy Hardin, also going Carmen San Diego on us. Are you looking for instant feedback on your business? If you are looking for real feedback on what you can do better in your business, then join our exclusive group of Patreon members. And you can do this by going to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Not only will you get an instant call on improving your business, but you'll get other perks such as joining our mastermind groups so you can get feedback from other listeners on your business as well. So if you're tired of growing your business alone and want to meet other bright entrepreneurs, then join our Patreon group by going to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. Or again, check the link in your episode description below.